grows like a weed. So when my mom listens to this, can you talk to her a little bit about, hey, this is completely different than what she thinks, because I think some of the messaging was lost in the whole reefer madness. Right, and it, it absolutely was. Um, and I think that's kind of holding a lot of the industry back in other states, because um, they legalized marijuana, and then they kind of leave hemp out of the picture, you know? Um, whereas like we're trying to do this in Texas and, and especially here working with farmers, like we present this as just like a pure commodity crop, you know, no medicinal, no recreational value. I mean, medicinal in, in a healing sense, but like no recreational, like this is for building materials. This is for paper, for clothing. And the hemp seed is a great source of protein. We've got Luke Evans here on the Know Me Network podcast, um, where we interview business owners, entrepreneurs, and industry experts on kind of a more personal level. Um, and today I'm excited to interview Luke um, with an interesting background and you're into some interesting things around the hemp product um, and the plant and the consumables around that. Um, and I'm excited to dive on that. Before we get started, you know, I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself and tell us who you give credit to for all this handsomeness? <laughs> well, definitely the parents. Uh, yeah, Lucas Evans, man, I appreciate it, Chris. This is a great opportunity. Um, we need all the exposure we can get. We're trying to do the right thing out there. Um, and, you know, kind of to your point, uh, I credit a lot of this to my family, my mom and dad. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a little younger, but prior to that, he did you know, was kind of a, I don't know, freelance engineer. Uh, he developed the first commercial wind farm in Texas. And my mom, she was a horticulturalist for 30 years, straight up flower child. Um, and those two kind of elements combined to create me in which I'm trying to be a, you know, bring the promise of green technology and just like a recentering of our focus on nature um, to industry, to society. Um, and, and overall consumer products and, and hemp is a wonderful vehicle to do that. Um, and so that's kind of where I, you know, arrived at hemp as a, as a great medium for. Yeah. Interesting hemp. story there. And you're, you're located where, tell us where you're located. Yeah. So, uh, grew up in, uh, Hutto, Texas, the Northeast of Austin. Uh, our operations are in Taylor. Um, and then we do things, uh, around the state and actually around the world. We have a few ongoing projects that uh, require a good deal of travel, but Austin, Texas is what I claim is home. So gotcha. So your bio here says something really interesting that I want to read. It says you're an environmental scientist, industrial hemp farmer, processor and uh, conservation strategist. You're working to bring mother nature's finest creations and humanity's cutting edge breakthroughs to industry, agriculture, urban and conservative lands and lead at your lead architect of the Texas Industrial Landscape Park, um, 700,000 plus acres, uh, former strip mine land industrial parks that you guys are gonna recreate, it kind of sounds like. And my favorite part here is that I want you to unpack for me, but at the intersection of the fourth industrial revolution, second green revolution and the yeah. great awakening, which yeah. I find is incredible and true. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, you know, for teeing that up because there is a lot there. Um, and really coming out of college, um, you know, I'm about seven years into this company. 
I realized, uh, you know, I studied environmental science, you know, I have a deep love for the outdoors and for nature, and I was able to travel and recognize the massive issue we have, you know, rapidly growing population, rapidly declining life systems, you know, crop yields have plateaued around the world, um, but that hasn't slowed down people from having kids. Um, and we're starting to see that in the price of things. Um, but mainly, you know, I realized like there was no place to work for somebody who wanted to do good. Um, every job that I got out of college was uh, basically doing the opposite of what I wanted to do. You know, either I was going to work for an oil company or a highway company permitting highways. And then eventually I, uh, I got a job offer for $111,000 to move to Green Bay and I was going to permit mines. And they were like, you got the job. We just need you to move up here. And I was like, wow. Um, <laughs> sell my soul right there um, or, or try to do the latter, which was um, start the Earth Endeavor. Um, and that kind of was a friend's company that I grew up with, had a bunch of equipment. And I was like, hey, man, instead of mining, all of these strip mines need to be cleaned up. Uh, you know, it's called mining and reclamation. Um, and I think as of like the 80s, every bit of mined land is required at some way, at some level to be returned to a previous state. Um, and emphasizing the previous state, right? They, depending on where you're at, they can let you just fill in the hole or you have to replant trees, yada, yada. Um, well, I hit that full throttle. I started going to uh, mining meetings. You know, I was getting a little commission for just pushing dirt basically. And I was trying to just push dirt back into the hole. Um, and we did a few fun little things here and there. Uh, we did one project planted 37,000 trees, recreated, uh, you know, about a half a mile of stream banks. Um, and so got some good experience there, but mainly recognized that the coal industry is dead and dying, um, especially in Texas, where we have very poor quality coal. And so I would go to these meetings um, and just sit around a room full of professional adults, you know, been doing this their whole life and they're kind of just like you know it's a it was a it's a bizarre thing you know it's still ongoing you know and, and they're good people but you know how do you try to justify something that's not just bad for river streams and air but like that's economically unviable you know you don't have to be a genius to think digging up rocks and burning them isn't very economical and so you We're know mine right or safe to mine, yeah, one of the most dangerous industries across. And so, you know, the Earth Endeavor, like we're trying to take broad strokes and provide big solutions to big problems. Um, and so I saw this as a massive problem and then we have it mapped out and would love to share. And we've got with some really excellent uh, land planning groups um, and folks like EarthX to kind of support us on this. But yeah, it's the Texas Industrial Landscape Park. And so, as these coal mines shut down, you know, this is not a done deal. Um, these people fight and claw and they lobby and they do everything they can to hold on to it. But ultimately, um, it's either this or a hole in the ground, um, literally, you know. And so this has been done in Europe. It's been done um, in parts of Appalachia. We just need to turn attention to it. You know, most people don't even realize we mine coal in Texas. Well, how come this isn't top of mind for people with the you know, politically poised environment of green, 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 you know, why isn't this front and center? You know, we all know coal's not that great. Yeah. Um, 
it's an it's it's a geopolitical matter. Uh, you know, I've you know I've talked to the representatives for these areas, and they're like, "Oh, don't worry. You know, we're going to get these coal mines fired up." I see a newsletter a month later. They hosted the Chinese coal ministry. Um, so you know, there's a whole nature and mindset to like extraction and doing this, and you know, pun intended, they're between a rock and a hard place. And that mindset's just not going to fit for the future. And plus, you know, growing population in Texas, these coal mines go right through the heart of the triangle. If you're familiar with the, you know, Dallas, to you know, San Antonio to Houston, it's right dead center of it. And so this is an optimal opportunity to, you know, protect already disturbed land. We've already extracted from it. You know, most of it can't be built upon because of the geotechnical you know, from strip mining, a lot of it hard to be planted. So there's a lot of work, but um, if you look at it and if you think about the right of way easements for the power lines, we could theoretically have a wildlife corridor that goes from East Texas down to Mexico. Um, and that would combine about 700,000 acres and land fragmentation is really one of our biggest issues. You know, it's hot, it's dry, but the main issue is that you go a hundred yards and you run into a fence, you know? So imagine any animal that roams, uh, it's pretty much impossible. So, so, trying to, so I'm, I'm trying to envision this, you know, basically East Texas to Mexico, a right away of land is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's already there. That's the thing. Um, because this has been coveted. I mean, a lot of people are trying to re reconnect landscapes, uh, you know, Ted mm -hmm. Turner, uh, with his deal from Mexico to Canada, you know, people get all up in arms and rightfully so about eminent domain and stuff. And so this has already been done. I mean, the, the power lines are there and, and I recognize this actually flying in airplanes. You know, I was fortunate to travel when I was younger and you get up and, you know, I was, always had my head out the window and you're looking and you see these lines that just go off for miles into the horizon. And I like, you know, I racked my mind for years. I couldn't figure out like, what are these just perfectly, you know, contoured lines that go on for miles in their power lines um, or, or gas pipelines. And so, you know, when you're not using the power lines, which in a lot of cases, now that we're not mining coal, these power lines aren't being used for anything. Why not just, you know, maintain the easement, put it into a conservation easement, and, you know, God forbid we give some land back. And, you know, the cell is, it's a public asset, right? And that's what's been done in Germany. It's called the Imscher Landschaft Park, the landscape park. Um, but and a, lot they of did, these, a lot of this land here is owned by some Mr. Jim or Mr. Joe, right? Yeah, um, but we're kind of working on a, at my property here in Hutto, we've got an easement right-of-way that comes through that was signed in 1964 by a pipeline company and they just showed up about a month and a half ago and said hey we're putting in a new pipeline we need to tear down a building cut down a big tree and there's nothing you can do about it um and so i responded appropriately how, you, how one might imagine uh -huh. <laughs> and uh that's still ongoing but right-of-way persists and so you know, if we can just get these coal miners, you know, it's kind of an off ramp for a lot of them. We need political action. Uh, Jay Kleberg, he's running for land commissioner. Um, he's in support of this. Uh, he's big on, 
Jay Kleberg of the King Ranch. Um, he's running for land commissioner. And so, you know, we're going to need some support by the government, but private industry really needs to just step up and, you know, frankly, cut their losses. Um, because what's ha what happens is they run these things into the ground. You know, they, you can, the writing's on every wall around you that like, you got to stop digging up rocks and burning them. And, but these are coal mining companies. And so they're going to do that. That's the only they've thing. They've got huge investments into these companies, you know, they can't just, you know, boards and all that stuff. So yeah, that's a, that's a big hurdle. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't want to talk like it, like this is a done deal. Um, it's it's going to, I think it'll take another three or four years, um, but it, it's got to be done, you know, because this is one of the last opportunities we have to protect large swaths of land and then potentially reconnect them and so that's the type of projects you know we're kind of hoping to get involved in with the earth endeavor okay um, and so i'm guessing that you got based off of you know your mom and your dad gave you a little bit of this um kind of go out and recreate the world a little but you know did you learn any of this from you know your pie cap days of you know being the director there did, did you take anything away from some of that stuff into where you are now Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I grew up on a farm that uh, a family has been here seven generations and was awfully you have fortunate. A, you guys have a family farm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, we had one that was about a thousand acres and then that got sold off, that got sold off. And then in 2005, we sold the last like 400 acres and we still have the house, the homestead and a little bit of land around it. But, you know, my, in my whole life, you know, 2005, that's 17 years ago. Like I just heard, and it was a big family deal, you know, like 30 people, like most land, it just was a big family feud and it got split up. And so, um, but my whole life, like this was hanging over my head, like, you know, this kingdom that you were able to grow up on with creeks and streams and animals and, you know, fossils and all this was like eventually going to be turned into, you know, strip malls and houses. And that didn't happen until actually about three years ago. Um, so that's just how the market, you know, right before they were going to develop in 2008, the market crashed and it took them another 10 years to get back to it. And today they're putting in 990 houses in Samsung, uh, you know, sure. it's about to be Samsung city. So luckily I have a little better understanding of what's going on. You know, at the time I was just like, Oh, you know, uh, this is happening. But, you know, I found that, while progress and industry and jobs, you know, are, are, they're good, you know, but they can also be bad. They're not impenetrable and they're not um, impossible to change. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you can't do anything about that. You know, I, I can't, I mean, that's all I hear is, oh, you can't do anything about that. And so, well, you probably have never tried. Um, and so like this neighborhood they built, they had the road gonna go right through our house. I graduated college, you know, I got an environmental science degree, kind of, you know, urban planning type stuff. I was like, oh, let's look at the maps. The main east-west road through Hutto they had going right through our house. I called the engineer and I'm like, uh, you know, hey guys, what's this about? <laughs> like, you know, oh, well, we didn't even know anybody lived there. I'm like, okay, yeah, we just sold you the property and you didn't think we lived here. Um, big mistake. Big mistake. Um, so I invited the guys out, you know, and you've got to be 
rational. You've got to be with kitted gloves in these situations. And I'm just like, look, guys, we're here. We're not going anywhere. And so they graciously moved the road 50 feet north uh, and, you know, acted like that was a big deal. Like, you know, we did this and that. I'm like, well, okay, great. You could have just, you know, it's still going to clip the property, but it's not going to go through the house. Um, and at that point, I was going to run for mayor of Hutto. I was like 23. And, uh, you know. So how big is how big is that town? Hutto is about 30,000 people now. Okay. And you graduated with how many people? Um, I graduated with about 400. Okay. And so so it was 5A school? Yeah, it was one of the fastest growing cities my whole childhood growing up. Hutto, I mean, it's right on the outside of Austin. And so it was... Uh, and I mean, that definitely played into a lot of this, it. just like this unceasing, just like everywhere you look, it's just like development, development, which is then followed by trash. And then, you know, we love people, but, you know, it's, it's like goodness. And then they, you know, tend not to have a lot of respect for, you know, if you're not, you know, in a place for a long time and we don't have a lot of connectivity to nature, it's, it's hard to justify a lot of stuff, you know. It, it totally is. So um, how does all of the hemp talk come into the Endeavor business where you're kind of recreating this land? Um, do they kind of coincide together? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of yeah. help me understand that. Yeah. Um, Chris, I just want to say you're, you're a great man. Uh, I appreciate this. It's... Yeah. it's uh, you know, I want to hear what's, what's happening, but, um, yeah, so we, the issue is profit per acre, right? That's what it comes down to is like, how much are we making per acre in a lot of cases, you know, and we sold the farm because we weren't making enough money per acre. Right. And so that plus, you know, these landscape projects, they take time, you know, this one project in particular is probably five or seven year project. And so, what do we do in the meantime? Well, we've got to find a way to profit from arable land. Um, that's also one of our most finite resources is arable land. So I don't like to pass words. I don't know what they mean. What do you mean by arable land? Uh, land that you could put seeds in the ground and they will grow. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, the fertile crescent, um, you know, river bottoms, it's the best land. It's where humans tend to survive and evolve, but we have overlooked that. And th so the United Nations tells us that we have 60 years left of soil. Um, so we talk about, you know, climate change and pollution, but it's like, actually, we just don't have enough soil and we don't focus enough on, you know, soil erosion. And then we pave over it and we build Samsung factories. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to justify that, you know, people look at mountains and big trees and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. Let's protect that. But that's not what provides food. You know, that's not what like, you know, really sustains large mammals. It's the grasslands, it's the arable soil, the river bottoms, um, which, you know, they look at as easy to develop. It's really, you know, our most valuable land and it, you know, it takes a hundred years to create one inch of soil. And so this is not like a renewable resource. And so, um, you know, hemp became legal in 2019 in Texas. And, you know, I had a good understanding of 
kind of global agriculture and industrial agriculture, having grown up on, in the middle of a farm, you know, and then I went to college and kind of learned about that in context and, um, you know, realized that, you know, about four companies control about 85% of the food and decisions made. Um, and we're a close partner of Texas A&M, but, you know, the universities are in bed with, the, uh, you know, the industry and the industries in bed with the military and the government. And, um, you know, they own the genetics and they've really outlawed farming, literally, in a lot of cases. And so hemp kind of came in in the last quarter, three minutes left and was like, hey, you know, we're like, it's like the most useful old plant known to humans and it's legal. Um, so that's the question in itself right there, just about the plant. Um, hey, it became legal and it's got such good resources. Why did we quote, quote all of a sudden find out about this in the third quarter? <laughs> yeah, I can't figure that one out. I mean, conspiracy or something, right? Uh, it baffles me because we're doing this in the 20, 20th century. We just had a field day with AM last Friday. And I just kind of raised that point. I was like, you know, I could talk about this all day and night. And here we are in the 21st century. But like, this has been with us since the dawn of man. Yeah, um, I have a hard time believing that the tobacco fields that we built America on weren't also filled with hemp fields. Right, right. Uh, and I think it was Thomas Jefferson or or. You know, I mean, the Declaration of Independence was written, one copy was written on cannabis. <laughs> you know. so, so something happened with the message between then and now. And now we're kind of bringing this message back to, which is that, you know, awakening or revolution of just how do we do things better? Mm -hmm. And so right. talk to us about how hemp does it better. Yeah, so, right, how hemp does it better? Because it, it does. I mean, it's a prolific plant. I mean, it grows here. Um, it's drought tolerant right now. Our plants are eight feet tall, green still. I mean, they're not happy, but this is one of the hottest, driest summers on record. But compared to the corn and cotton, which have been, you know, genetically modified and developed over decades and billions of dollars, hemp, you just throw it in the ground and it goes. Um, and it grows like a weed, you know, I mean, it, it really is. Um, and that's funny that you said that. So um, it grows like a weed. So when my mom listens to this, can you talk to her a little bit about, hey, this is completely different than what she thinks, because I think some of the messaging was lost in the whole reefer madness. Right. And it, it absolutely was. Um, and I think that's kind of holding a lot of the industry back in other states because um, they legalize marijuana and then they kind of leave hemp out of the picture you know um whereas like we're trying to do this in texas and, and especially here working with farmers like we present this as just like a pure commodity crop you know no medicinal no recreational value i mean medicinal in, in a healing sense but like no recreational like this is for building materials this is for paper for clothing and the hemp seed is a great source of protein um and so you know, we have these conversations with farmers. And so the issue we discussed earlier about soil conservation and agricultural practice, you know, hemp is a great medium to kind of bridge that conversation. Um, but we have to be very careful in how we present that. And, um, 
you know so, so how how is that received i mean as you approach farmers who are quote old school that grew up in this message to hey we've got this plant it's legal now and it can do all of these things for your soil and are they accepting are they open to these things what are those conversations like um you know some of them will kind of just laugh at you you know uh farmers are not the easiest people to convince of anything um but i've come to realize that they are probably our smartest group of people in society um you know and i just you know messed around my really our second year so this is our third year of, of really scaling up but the second year i moved out to the farm i had a tractor 40 acres i tried to plant hemp and, and try to do it all and um no, I mean, these guys, and I, I had this image of like, you know, during the day, farmers are like the only people that actually work with mother nature. Mm. You know, most 90% of people spend 90% of their life indoors or something like that. 80% spend 90% indoors. And so it's like farmers are the only ones that actually respond and understand nature. And, you know, they're aware of every problem. Like, you know, they might justify it in different ways, you know, biblically or or the government or whatever, but they're aware more acutely of all of the issues than we are, you know, especially like the university. I love the college I went to, but I kind of see this like indoctrination and this kind of like ivory tower view of the world. And they like to blame people and say, you know, hey, they're responsible for this. And these guys are dumb. And no, what it is, is we've just, you know, made things easier for people. And we've kind of put the externalities of the world we live in aside. And then, you know, we've kind of like also, you know, oh, hard work, you know, you don't want to work hard and all these things. And they add up to here we are and. 2022 and 1% of the population provides the food for the other 99%. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, we don't think about it like that, but that's really the, the, the truth there. And so what is that 1% forced to do other than, you know, mass industrial agriculture? And then within that, that 1%, the average age is like 67 years old and the kids don't want to take it over. You know, it's hard, hard work. And so they saw their dad busting hump all their life and their granddad busting hump, you know, and I, I, you mean, I can go to college and go make a good living. Right, exactly. And that was kind of the thing. And so you drive around out here and, and this always struck me as like you get 30 minutes outside of a major population and the overall quality of the city and quality of life. I mean, I don't want to say quality of life, but like, you know, there's ghost towns. There are ghost towns everywhere in America and rural America. Um, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's both a brain drain just because, you know, the people go to college and then they stick in the cities and then, you know, the economy goes away and then it just consolidates. And then so you've got four farmers where you used to have 50. Yep. Um, and, you know, not to mention the economics that we're in right now. I was just out in East Texas and you know, price of everything's higher for cattle and feed and all these things. And, you know, what used to produce a hundred bales only produced 40 this year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things well, going on out there. I mean, I see you're an Aggie. Uh, yeah. 
And so you know about it? What'd you do there? Study there? Um, I, I was, um, I spent three years at Texas A&M. I graduated in 2004. And so I spent uh, ca- uh, Francione years. Oh yeah, let's go. Um, yeah. As a student manager for the uh, defensive coordinator, Coach Torbush. So oh, cool. I was, um, and I, I got a agriculture degree from there as well. So I love Texas A&M. So oh, I'm preaching cool. to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I think it's interesting that, that it tends to be a hub for, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like some of the research that I've been doing about this industry is, tends to be a hub for the conversation. Yeah. What's that A&M? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're pushing the envelope. Um, Dr. Baltensperger, uh, Calvin Trossel. Um, I mean, these guys are eager. I mean, AM is the largest agriculture institute in the world. Um, and then when you combine that with the Norman Borlaug Institute, which has, you know, basically a, a facility in every country, what happens at AM happens around the world. I mean, we really taught the world how to, to agriculture, to farm and and within that, you know, people, and, you know, I went to a lovely, small liberal art private university, Southwestern, go Pirates. Yeah. Um, but they kind of like, you know, again, they vilify these things. And in the 80s, you know, we really were looking at a level of mass starvation around the world. Um, and I don't know, I mean, you probably remember Norman Borlaug, and mm. he won a Nobel Prize for this. And he teamed up with Texas A&M and the University of Nebraska and you know we sped up you know that's when we that was the first green revolution actually so late 70s early 80s was already the first green revolution where we were looking at like you know again crop yields are dropping off population is exploding there were starvations in sub-saharan africa and india and you know these people set out and they you know introduced call it what you want industrial agriculture um, but also this, you know, plant breeding and, and just kind of basic agricultural models that are now accepted everywhere. Um, and I mean, that originated right here, you know, and so we That's keep crazy. that in the back of our mind. Yeah. And we, one, one thing we like to do is, you know, if we can do it in Texas, we can do it anywhere. And if we can't do it in Texas, then <laughs> and I, and I don't know what yeah. yeah so uh that's that's interesting and I, like I said it's you know looking at back at my university it's cool to see you know um not to get the two tangled but as I look at just a, a 50,000 foot view of this quote industry you know they attach the b word to it not m word you know it's billions mm-hmm. so, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's just when they're talking about the you know marijuana industry i don't know that that consumes the consumable side of the hemp industry do you know i mean i think they're looking at this and i and we had some really good conversations i mean they're really looking at this as a i mean i think about it and they do too like as very minimum a rotational crop you know so if one in ten farmers tries this once a year you're looking at in Texas, that's one and a half million acres. And so one and a half million acres, let's say you profit $1,000 an acre or $1,000 of money go into that, then you've got a billion dollar crop. Um, you know, so for cattle feed and for fiber and stuff like that, I mean, 
So you're feeding cows this stuff too? Uh, you know, the cows like it. We'll say oh. that. Uh, we we aren't directly feeding them. Uh, but the I cows. I don't know if it could like be it. processed into some sort of cow feed. I just didn't know that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of good studies coming out that, you know, hemp and, and cannabis uh, has the same effect on cows as it does humans. So it makes them docile, hungry, they eat more. Uh, you know, those are three things you really want out of a cow. Yeah, no so, kidding. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, we, we see a bright future in that. Um, and shout out a company, Blue Bonnet Bioscience. That's a company that uh, we work with. Uh, I'm kind of a, a managing partner in, but that is developing some feed and uh, some, you know, cattle derivatives of, of hemp. So Blue Bonnet yeah. Bioscience. And, and, and they just kind of support you. What is it they do with you guys? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the man, well, you know, we've got a team scientist on that. Uh, we've got a board member. He's uh, a head of range, not a head, but a professor of range management at Lubbock. Um, and, you know, we're just kind of uh, putting together formulations for cattle feed and protein profiles and different mixtures. I mean, you know, hemp is one element. Yeah. you know, mix it with molasses and, and silage and Sudan grass and kind of find that right little. So, you know. so in the whole world of hemp, now that we're kind of rediscovering, if you will, um, how far are we into the discovery of hemp? You know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like, hey, we know everything about the plant. Where are we? I mean, you want the honest truth. And this is the fourth industrial revolution second green revolution and the great awakening are kind of being i i see like hemp being kind of at that center point um just because it is such an applicable deal um and i don't know how much of this is privy but they said it in front of a bunch of people so i'll share it um you know there's two technologies here that are really emerging as useful and today and that's quantum technology um, and i see that as kind of the fourth industrial re revolution i mean it's electrification but it's really more than that um mm -hmm. you know it's like we now can turn you know there's a company in in houston right now billion dollar company taking thin air taking carbon dioxide out of the air and making everything out of it um when you say then, everything you mean what pharmaceuticals plastics protein uh you know it's it's synthetic chemistry but it's the ability to turn one molecule into another molecule huh. um and it's yeah it's straight out of star trek um and there's another company in norway that's taking your exhale and making food um, and this is like space technology and you know um so there's like this quantum aspect of it and then you look at crispr um you're familiar with crispr I yeah. have heard of this. Um, please kind of download me real quick for those who may not know. Yeah, so uh, that's gene editing, CRISPR. Um, it's the ability. And I, I see you got that circle on the back. Uh, what is that evolution behind you? Or? This is the, uh, the you know, this is my play for, for people who believe the, the biblical timeline. Okay. You know? So if people who are, quote, Christians want to tell me they, they believe the biblical timeline, well, you can't believe in dinosaurs either and the biblical timeline right so it's my poke at 
and I'm a Christian too. So it's just my, my way of having fun with faith. Well, and this is, you know, getting into like a bioethics type of a deal. Um, but we've been manipulating genetics for forever, you know, selective breeding. I mean, it's our forever, forever. Um, but now, and, and AM is openly talking about this, and, you know, we're exploring some research partnerships in applying CRISPR to hemp. Um, and, and it'll be applied to everything, but just to kind of give you an example of what that might look like is, you know, we could produce, I mean, right now they're trying to turn off the THC gene. Um, so, you know, we map the genome and then you can just start playing with it, turning things on. Well, you can also turn things off and then introduce other genes to that. Um, and so. So this is when you start playing God. Yeah. Um, which, which you know, you know, we, we've been given this ability to do this, which, you know, it's just a matter of, in my mind, I start thinking, well, you're taking something out of a plant that may actually be there for a good thing, but also adding something to it. So I guess right, well, what's well, the goal in, in the mapping of just to get the THC out? Yeah, well, that's their one deal. Um, and that might just be like, you know, that's just like a starting point. And, and where we're at in terms of understanding the plant, I would say probably a four. Mm. Um, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, um, because like when they started to break, and that's what's really fascinating and to another draw for this is like so many smart people are attracted to this plant. You know, a lot of smart people, they tend to smoke, you know, and so you've got like all these companies, all these laboratories, all these things popping up for the extraction of THC. And then they come to find out, well, there's a whole spectrum of THC and there's THC, Delta eight, nine, seven, four, you know, CBG, A, D. And, you know, once, and we've got that map pretty good and we can start to manipulate that to like, you know, and, and the pharmaceutical companies know this, like we'll get to a point where we can pretty much replace every medicine with cannabis, you know, everything from anxiety to pain to hunger, um, you know, whatever it is, epilepsy, we've just kind of got to dial that in and see. So you know. back to the, back to the conspiracy in it all, right. You know, yeah. who, who, are we healing people going to the doctor? Right. And, Maybe that's the goal was to for us to not heal people and have them keep coming back and getting their refill because sounds to me like there's a lot of benefit here. Oh, immense. Uh, I mean, you're immense, talking about a pharmaceutical industry of multiple 20s and 30s and 40s, maybe even on the low end. You know, I have no idea, but it's a huge industry that you're talking about back to the coal industry, trying to fight these industries. Yeah. Um, and that's why I, I see it as a revolution. Um, you know, it kind of gives you some goosebumps every once in a while. Cause you're like, uh, you know, these, these systems don't want to be broken, but they're aware of it. And I mean, they're getting involved in this, um, of course, you know, and so we've kind of got to keep a keen eye on that. Um, but yeah, I was going to say this, you know, like to, to really think about the application of CRISPR, like we could, and, you know, I'll just bounce this idea off you and then your listeners, like we could theoretically introduce like spider silk to the hemp plant. And so that the hemp seed produces a spider silk protein, you know, cause they've already done this with 
um, goats. You know, because spider silk is one of the most remarkable materials that if we could produce in mass, we could do a lot of crazy stuff with it. And so they've done this with goats and they put the protein in the milk and we could do the same with hemp and, you know, or whatever. I mean, what, you know, you tell me what we want to make out of it and we could kind of introduce that to some part of the plant. Now, you know, A&M is notorious for, uh, and I don't know if this is just a, a folk tale, but they created the non-spicy jalapeno hmm. and then it got out. And so now you never really know if you're going to get a spicy jalapeno or not. <laughs> so, you know, not the worst thing, but like, you know, that's just evidence. So yeah. Interesting. So you, you've talked a lot about Texas A&M. Um, talk to me about kind of your involvement with the university and, you know, kind of your engagement with, with the university. Yeah, so uh, we're fortunate right down the road from uh, one of their research farms, Styles Farm Foundation. Uh, um, and we use source. I mean, we're farmers in Texas and that's, you know, I heed their advice at any turn, you know, I'm like, hey, what should we do? What's a planting date? When's the harvest? What varieties? Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, you know, don't work with universities, but they're public entities. You know, they are for the public and that information is for the betterment of society, right? I mean, there's mandates by these universities or land-grant universities to improve the quality of, in this case, agriculture. And it's kind of cool when you get down to it. And like, so we worked with AM, but we also do a little work with Texas Tech. And it's like AM is concerned with the cultivation, the agriculture, up to the point of harvest, at which point Texas Tech nicole university takes it over and they turn it into the fiber you know they have the largest fiber institute you know and so wow right yeah i didn't know about this until i like <laughs> was talking with the you know the professors there and they're like yeah we don't really worry about that much so they hand it off to the next guy and so um yeah so crazy thinking that we're on kind of the cutting edge of all of this and you can kind of feel it you know I mean, oh, yeah. just, just look around and get the feel for asking yourself well, after you hear this and you do a little research, I guess the question is like, what are we doing? Why, why aren't we doing this? Yeah, and that's kind of the gist I get from, I mean, A&M, they're fired up about this. Uh, you know, they want partners, you know, they need money, um, you know, and so we're not, we're not flush with cash. We're trying to do a lot of things. And so, you know, I encourage people to kind of you know, give them a nod and, and look at them for some research help. In addition to check us out, um, you know, the Earth Endeavor and, and Texas Hemp Processors.net. But um, yeah, so, yeah, so talk about who you would like to connect with out there um, in terms of business perspectives. So are you trying to find prospective farmers? You know, what is it that you're looking to connect with? Well, I mentioned this earlier. I mean, for one, and I mean, everything because we're on the cutting edge, everything is the first thing and it's you know we have to kind of pioneer that and insurance is one of them mm -hmm. uh, you know crop insurance facility insurance um and so that's and banking i mean we you know we had to kind of do a, a a refiguring of our banking because you know the word hemp you get flagged and the federal government you know does that and so you know who we really want to connect with is is yeah farmers you know, we need to produce this in mass to bring down the cost of everything. 
um, you know, because right now I, like, we need some somewhere around 7,000 acres to make a viable, uh, you know, like, the margins are, you know, kind of slim in a lot of cases. So you, that's the thing about agriculture. You have to do a lot of it to make. So 7,000 acres is a lot of land, man. So if, I, if, you know, six guys, one guy's got 200 over here and he hears this and he's like, man, I, I'm not using that land for much. It's just property. You guys could use it. Is that, you know, would you be open to that too? Yeah, sure. And and I had a conversation this morning with somebody. They've got 328 acres. Well, actually, they've got 100 and they wanted to run the numbers. And this was kind of like my dream come true. I mean, he was asking me this. He was like, you know, we're kind of consulting. And he was uh, basically like, look, I want to buy this land, but I want to know that if we cultivate it and we work the land and not develop it, that we can basically pay for the, the note on this land. And I was like, yes, like, let's figure this out. Like, that's our dream. You know, either we can operate it, you can farm it, we'll buy it at the door, um, you know, or we'll contract out with a farmer. So, so yeah. I'm a farmer, just so I hear. So I'm a farmer, I've got land. I can do this and you will kind of support me or, hey, man, go ahead and take care of it and pay me on the back end. Well, eventually we want to just buy it. You know, you come in with a truck, weigh it out, and we'll write you a check. Eventually we want to get there, you know, and that's going to be like where we're a commodity and that the farmer can guarantee and the insurance has to be there. Yep. Um, you know, that's what we want. We want to just be a processor and then we'll have the markets to sell it into. Okay. Um, but for now, you know, we'll help you get seeds. We can help you harvest and cultivate and, um, you know, just kind of get consult. you up to speed. Consulting, right. Um, so we can do that, definitely. Um, and, you know, on the 7,000 acre front, I mean, that's a lot of land. Mm -hmm. But relative to agriculture. and it's not that much, you're right. You know, conventional farming, I think the break even for corner cotton for one farmer the break even for him to pay for his operation is six thousand acres and the seven thousand acres that we're talking about that's based on employing about 350 people and and you know doing everything we want to do on seven thousand acres so that's a lot different than one farmer being able to pay for his whole operation with six thousand acres of say soybeans um yeah, that's you know, for sure. It's definitely something for these guys to think about. Yes, yes. Um, if there's any farmers out there, man, just check out texashempprocessors.net. Um, my email is lucas at texashemppro.com. Um, yeah, so we're, you know, happy to, you know, I've worked, we've worked with growers all over the state. Um, and we're cautious. I mean, I don't try to sell anybody on you know, a lot of people are like, oh, this is a million dollar deal and, you know, drop a hundred thousand dollars to get started. And I mean, no, we're, we get it. We're trying to like, you know, use existing equipment, you know, start with 20 or 50 acres. If that works, you kind of know the harvesting practice and then we'll scale up from there. Um, so what is this similar to that I could kind of recreate? So what crops out there, people already growing that I got all the same machinery that just swap it or is there, you know, Hey, is corn the place to go or soybean? I've heard you mention these. So, or does it matter? Um, I mean, I think any, 
if you got hay equipment, you know, a swather, a rake, and a baler, um, you know, you've got a, there's a bit of a cultivation matter there. You don't want stalks this big around, you know, you kind of want them no bigger than a dime or a, or a nickel. Um, and then that can vary too, based on what you want to get out of it, you know? And so that's kind of like where, and all these things kind of come together, right? Because the farmer has to be working with the processor to know what the end product's going to be and how he's going to plant it. You know, so if you want fiber stuff, you're going to plant a bunch of plants together so they're skinny and straight. If you want grain for protein and food, you want to plant them far apart so they're bushy. So yeah. consult me, man. I don't know what I want to build. I don't want yeah. to put in my field. You know, how, how as I, these people are coming to you with this stuff. Hey, this sounds like a great idea. I got this land. Well, what do I want to grow? Well, and this is where this is a real promise. And this is the other folks that I'd like to talk to is, you know, basically taking back ownership, you know, of, of the process and owning at owning your farm and your farming product. I always encourage them to like, think about like, what is one thing that you could improve upon or what's one thing you're interested in? You know, I understand farmers don't want to get fully involved in the processing of it, but like this guy with 300 acres, he loves to hunt, you know? And so I'm like, Hey man, what do you think about like some, like a deer feed, you know, and I know there's some deer feeds out there and stuff like that, but like, think about something that you could use on the farm or if you have cattle, you know, just make feed for them or horse bedding. We, we work with a horse ranch out here um, and they've got 60 acres in the back and we, uh, you know, I'm like, Hey, just grow the hemp and you can use that for horse bedding. Um, you know, so I, I always try to like keep it on the farm, you know, and, and there's enough there to go around. But the other folks I'd really like to talk to are product development. So the 50,000 products you always hear about, um, I would get so many calls and for a while I was just like, okay, all right, like, are you going to farm this? Are you going to, you know, buy something? What are we doing here? And finally I'm like, Hey, let's just do this as a service. So product development, right. Is, you know, you want to make pool cues. We're working on a kayak, um, you know, charcoal, whatever, just follow that thread. And that's going to be your path to profit. You know, if you control and you have this one product and that you control the supply of it, the process, and then the market. Um, this is back know. to the consumable piece of it. You know, what, what, what products can we create on this? And so anybody out there that's kind of in this space or curious about it, or maybe have done some research into it, you know, you're, you want to talk to those folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've got the, I mean, it's like, you've got to have three things, right? You got to have the idea, the capital and the material. And, you know, we've got the material, you know, this, this is going to cost a little money, mm -hmm. but the idea has got to be there, you know, and the people have to be passionate about this. And that's just mainly what we look for when we're looking for partners or employees or anything. It's just, we need passionate people interested in what they're doing. And so I am always encouraging people just, Hey, what's your interest? Okay. You want to make uh, antibacterial bed sheets. All right, let's do it, man. Like we'll get you the hemp, you find the markets, you find the brand and we'll figure out how to get, get it there. Um, it's interesting. I've got a, a, a guy who's into safety equipment mm. and I'm just curious, you know, I've, I've seen some things about uh, 
potentially hemp products be, being non-flammable. And so yeah. I'm just curious if, you know, there'd be some, you know, do they see this getting into anything like that? Because I've seen them build a house and it's like, well, it's impenetrable from a two by four. Yeah, yep. Um, so there are superior chemical properties to hemp um, that, again, we don't fully understand. But yeah, like um, THCO or, or CBO is antibacterial antimicrobial so you can make you know bed sheets and masks and you know one thing we always say is we want to make money mm -hmm. but like you know dollar bills it really helps them to be antimicrobial and strong and so what better material than hemp to make our dollar bills that's incredible that's incredible yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man, this has been a cool time talking to you. Um, did I leave anything out? Is there anything that, hey, man, I'd just love to say this. I'd love to tell you about this. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to just give a shout out to anything. I mean, you, I mean, I really appreciate the exposure again, um, you know, and keep doing what you're doing because it, it takes, you know, sharing the message and, and, people passionate and interested to keep it going i mean people like this is a people industry you know it's a plant it's farming but it's like people and we just have to stay interested and and jane goodall says and, and i find this true you know of all the industry stuff and all the technology we talked about it's there i mean the technology exists like we are about to enter into the star trek of of times but apathy is the greatest threat to humanity and the planet you know just people so that's, that's a word right there that is a word i appreciate it man thank you so much and um we'll definitely be in touch yeah chris Cheers, man